Well, howdy, it's Ashley Chase here, the Executive Director of Real Faith Ministries, which I get to run with my parents, Pastor Mark and Grace. If you want to be the first to receive exclusive content and updates from Real Faith and my parents' Bible teaching, you can text REAL to 99383. You'll get eBooks, sermons, videos, and more sent straight to your phone every week to keep you from sliding into heresy and apostasy. You're welcome. That's REAL to 99383. And if you're strengthened, encouraged, and built up by my parents' teaching, consider partnering with us at realfaith.com. Every dollar you give reaches 100 people with the gospel. And as our thanks to you, we'll send you an ebook of Pastor Mark's Systematic Theology, which is called Doctrine. It's all about Jesus. It's an incredible resource, whether you just met Jesus or you've known him for a long time, and we hope it answers some of your questions. Again, just give a gift at realfaith.com, and we'll send you a copy. Chapter 1. In the ancient days preceding the prophet Elijah, in places where God had been worshipped, there started appearing large demonic images of bulls. These tributes were to the demon god Baal, the archenemy of the Lord and a god worship or wealth. Following the stock market crash of 1987 in 1989, near Wall Street, Baal again appeared. To this day, the image of the bull stands as a symbol of strength and virility, power and money, just as the worship of Baal always had. The bull is 11 feet high, 16 feet long, weighs 7,100 pounds, and is curiously golden just like the idol created by people to worship demons in the days of Moses, now representing hopes of blessing us with a bull market. For too long, too many people have read the Bible as if it were a primitive, outdated, and unhelpful view of the world. C.S. Lewis refers to this common hubris as chronological snobbery as if we have evolved beyond the fool's parade of history that preceded us. The truth is, while we have evolved externally, we have not evolved internally. We have more modern amenities and technologies around us, but we are no more loving, kind, truthful, or healthy than generations that preceded us. In this book, we will examine how old demons are back doing evil in new days. No longer hiding in the shadows, They are unblushingly in plain sight for those who have eyes connected to a renewed mind. In the ancient and modern world, Baal was and is worshipped for wealth and power. As the god of the rain, it was believed he would make the crops grow, which fed the livestock, which together sustained human life and grew the economy. Baal was so popular in the ancient world that the Bible speaks against this powerful demon and arch enemy of God over 100 times. Often you will see the name Baal followed by another name that is for a local city or region. Entire cities and regions name themselves in tribute to Baal. And today it would be spiritually accurate to rename cities like Baal, Seattle, Baal, Portland, Baal, San Francisco, Baal, Chicago, Baal, New York, Baal, Washington, D.C., etc., Today, the worship of Baal is manifest in the lust for power and money at any cost. In the ancient world, Jezebel is the demonic mother of prostitution, pornography, and pleasure. Ancient art depicting her is vulgar, crass, and pornographic. She had sacred prostitutes who were influencers in their day like porn stars and underdressed social media mavens in our day who are worshipped as goddesses. In the ancient and modern world, Jezebel is about taking sex, which should be in marriage, out of marriage. 
should be private into the public, should be for adults to children, and should be done in love instead for profit. Jezebel turns sex into a religious counterfeit by offering your body as a living sacrifice to the gods. The Jezebel spirit continually erases any sexual boundaries and, in our day, is pressing for legalized prostitution and the removal of any meaningful age of consent as children are being sexualized at a young age in school curriculum and on social media platforms. The result is a fast-increasing sexual abuse of minors, which has proven to increase the rate of gender confusion and transgenderism. In their Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Survey, the Center for Disease Control also confirms that sexual abuse and related trauma experienced in childhood causes sexual dysfunction. The mental health problem of gender dysphoria, unhealthy behaviors such as increased promiscuity, and obviously pornography addiction. Together, these demons have overtaken Western culture at every level, political, educational, spiritual, financial, etc. They are no longer hiding in the shadows, but instead operating in plain sight, because we have given them dominion over cultures and nations through our sin. Baal and Jezebel worked together in the ancient world as the highest-ranking demons presenting themselves as male and female. To worship these demons included sexual sin of every sort and kind, removing sex from marriage and childbearing, creating a culture of monetizing sex, sexual addiction, and child sacrifice, in the West, this began with the sexual and cultural revolutions of the 1960s and everything, from sex to drugs, no-fault divorce, along with legalized abortion and Jezebelian feminism of the 1970s, Baalistic materialism and consumerism of the 1990s, increase in cohabitation and dependence upon government, along with the decline in church attendance in the early 2000s to the complete culture war now playing out online with more division and deception along with temptation than ever before. Anyone who believes the Bible or even traditional values is labeled a heretic and attacked by a demonic mob. This is precisely what happened in the days of Elijah, and we are now also living in the demonic days of Elijah. Hell is hot, and so are demons today. While church attendance and the percentage of people professing to be Christians has been trending down for years, the demonic counterfeits are more popular than ever as spirituality and entertainment has grown darker and more sinister. Newsweek says Pew Research reported that 62% of American adults believe in hell, up from 58% in 2014, and pop culture appears to be taking full advantage of the curiosity that surrounds hell and its inhabitants. The devil is front and center in movies, TV shows, podcasts, and even children's books. There are Satan after-school clubs. There's the Exorcist Files in which Father Carlos Martins recreates exorcisms, and the podcast routinely tops the list of the most popular in the spirituality categories. On Netflix alone are dozens of titles dealing with hellish demons including Warrior Nun, Devil in Ohio, The Bastard Son, and The Devil Himself, and Lucifer, in which the ruler of hell runs a piano bar in California 
Comedy is also fair game. Thus, Ted Danson plays a torturous demon who is prone to mistakes in the Netflix series The Good Place. Humans crave spirituality, says Martins, who is the host of The Exorcist Files, but a Gallup poll in 2021 noted that for the first time in U.S. history, less than half of all Americans were members of a church, synagogue, or mosque to fill the void, many are embracing a rejection of received social customs and expected behavioral norms in favor of embracing me first, pleasure pursuing intense feelings and experiences. Martins told Newsweek, the adoption of Satan as a figurehead is merely another shock ceiling through which the movement has broken through. God creates Satan counterfeits. Throughout the Bible, God creates and Satan counterfeits. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created. 2 Thessalonians 2.9-10 speaks of the work of Satan as counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception. In the homes our children lived in, when they were little, all our light switches were simply on and off, some years into our marriage, we were able to purchase and move into a newer home, which had more modern amenities that were new to our children. For example, our kids were used to light switches that were simply entirely on or off. However, our newer and more modern home had multiple rooms where the lights were on a dimmer switch. Our children could often be found playing with the dimmer switch. They found it quite amazing to be able to control the lighting on a range from dark to light. One of the primary metaphors the Bible uses to describe spiritual warfare is light versus darkness. God wants his people to live in the light, and Satan wants us to live in the darkness. Much like a dimmer switch, Satan and demonic forces know that if they simply flip everything from light to darkness, it would be too obvious and stark. So, evil forces at work in the world slowly turn things darker and darker, hoping that, over the course of years and generations, the darkness is winning without being alarming. This is precisely the backdrop for the ministry of Elijah. Things had grown dimmer and darker for generations, and Elijah came to turn the light on. Demonic counterfeits are often referred to as false throughout the scriptures and include everything from false teachers to false prophets, false apostles, and false teaching. Christian discernment is the ability to rightly distinguish between that which God creates and that which Satan counterfeits. In the book, Win Your War, that I wrote with my wife, Grace, we delve deeply into this reality of spiritual warfare and give numerous examples, including angels versus demons, truth versus lies, spirit-filled versus demon-possessed, humility versus pride, forgiveness versus bitterness, worship versus idolatry, shepherds versus wolves, spirit versus flesh, church versus world, and heaven versus hell. The backdrop of the life and ministry of Elijah is spiritual warfare as God is seeking to sustain his kingdom that he created. And Satan is at work through a succession of demonic kings creating a counterfeit kingdom to tempt God's people away from worship and into idolatry. 
God was very clear about his commands for kings to worship him alone and serve as the worship leader of his people. God says in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children, in Israel. In disobedience to God, King Solomon built the temple for the worship of God, and sadly took many foreign wives who turned his heart away from God eventually causing him to sanction and support the worship of demonic false gods. That included child sacrifice, the same murderous act of modern-day abortion. After the death of Solomon, his kingdom was divided into two parts, the northern kingdom Israel and southern kingdom Judah. Keeping this fact in mind is helpful when studying the Old Testament because there is division between God's people and two kings and kingdoms from this point forward in history. In some ways, the situation would be akin to what America would look like had the Civil War resulted in one nation in the north and a separate nation in the south. For Israel and Judah, both kingdoms had numerous evil kings who despised God and deceived God's people. Angels and Demons Throughout the story of Elijah, there is the appearance of both angels and demons or gods, including named demon gods like Baal and Asherah. There is only one true God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, and all other gods are no more than powerful angels, spiritual beings who can do supernatural things but are nothings when compared to Yahweh. The Old Testament clearly states that there is only one God, and the New Testament is in full agreement. The Bible also teaches that there is no one like God, thus claiming to be like God is a satanic lie. However, demons, fallen spirit beings, may also pose as gods in illicit worship, possibly even through counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles. This is precisely what happens in the book of Exodus and is also the backdrop for Elijah's ministry in a spiritual war against these counterfeit demon gods working through a godless king and false prophets. These gods are very powerful fallen angels and other spirit beings who rebelled against God. They revile the real God and want to replace him with gods. Practically, this means that there are incredibly powerful demonic spirits with names such as Baal, 
and Ashra, who are center stage in life of Elijah, along with other named demon gods such as Chemosh, Molech, Brahman, Jezebel, Allah, Mother Earth, Mammon, Money, and Aphrodite, sex, that are wrongly worshipped by multitudes as gods. One major theme of the Bible is that God creates and Satan counterfeits. False gods are behind false religions led by false teachers who perform false miracles. All schemes to lead people astray from the real God to the false gods. Bible teachers have tended to simply refer to everyone in the unseen realm as angels. The Bible does speak of angels a lot some 300 times in roughly 90% of the books of the Bible. There, we learn about innumerable angels and thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Only two angels are named, Gabriel the messenger and Michael the warrior. There are also categories of angels like archangel and commander, which denote senior leaders, and also kinds of angels such as cherubim and seraphim. Angels are also referred to as stars and morning stars because they are between us and the heavens spiritually like the stars are physically. Angel means messenger, and angels are most likely lower-level divine beings in God's divine family. In addition to angels, however, there are also numerous other divine beings referred to throughout Scripture as Watcher, Holy One, Holy Ones, Host of Heaven, Prince of the Host, Prince of Persia, Chief Princes, Man Clothed in Linen, and a Lord. When God's divine family gathers, they are referred to as the Divine Council, Assembly of the Holy Ones, the Council of the Holy Ones, Host, the Seat of the Gods, the Mount of Assembly, the Court, Judgment, and the Heavenly Host. It was the Divine Council that met with Jacob traveling down a ladder at Bethel, meaning House of God. And it was the divine council that Daniel, Isaiah, and John reported seeing gathered around Jesus on the throne in the unseen realm. There is also long-standing error within biblical scholarship interpreting the Old Testament word Elohim as one of the names for God. All right, guys, Pastor Mark here letting you know about the latest book, New Days, Old Demons. It's a prophetic word against pathetic wokeness. Uh, you guys understand exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, hopefully it is on sale. If not, it's coming out very, very soon. Would appreciate your prayers as we punch a lot of people and things in the mouth. And if it's a help, get a copy. But also numerous other divine beings, which leads to the faulty conclusion that the Old Testament is polytheistic with many gods. Dr. Michael Heiser explains the fact that Biblical writers label a range of entities as Elohim that they elsewhere take pains to distinguish as lesser than Yahweh tells us quite clearly that we ought not understand Elohim as having to do with a unique set of attributes possessed by only one being. A biblical writer would use Elohim to label any entity that is not embodied by nature and is a member of the spiritual realm. This otherworldliness is an attribute all residents of the spiritual world possess. Every member of the spiritual world can be thought of as Elohim since the term tells us where an entity belongs in terms of its nature. The spiritual realm has rank and hierarchy. 
Yahweh is the Most High. Biblical writers distinguish Yahweh from other Elohim by means of other descriptors exclusively attributed to him, not by means of the single word Elohim. When the demonic Queen Jezebel vows her loyalty to the gods, this is the precise word she is using. In so doing, she is giving her undying allegiance to a created being, a fallen angel, rather than to the Creator God. A simple way of summarizing all of this is to say that any being in the divine realm is referred to in the Bible as an Elohim. That includes God and other divine beings. Psalm 82.1 is one clear example of this principle. God Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the God's Elohim, he holds judgment. From the beginning, God's people have lived with constant pressure to accept other religions and gods as equally worthy of worship as the God of the Bible. Too many times people are like Solomon and divide their devotion between God and the gods. His failure to remain devoted solely to God set in motion the splitting of two kingdoms and the succession of demonic kings that we will study next. To embolden us, the Bible presents stirring stories of faithful followers like Elijah and Elisha who would not compromise their devotion to God despite facing opposition and persecution. Israel's Evil Kings Just prior to the entrance of Elijah in 1 Kings 17, the scene is set with the reporting of the demonic kings who became increasingly evil with every generation in the northern kingdom of Israel. King Jeroboam, we are told in 1 Kings 13, 33, did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. 1 Kings 14, 16 speaks of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. King Nadab's brief reign is reported in 1 Kings 15, 25 through 26. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. King Basha killed Nadab and murdered all the descendants of Jeroboam. God rebuked Nadab, saying in 1 Kings 16, 2-4, You have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have caused my people Israel to sin provoking me to anger with their sins. Therefore, I will consume Basha and his house. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and any one of his who dies in the field, the birds of the air shall eat. King Elah's short, worthless reign is reported in 1 Kings 16, 8 through 10 and 13. He reigned two years, but his servant Zimri conspired against him. When he was drinking himself drunk, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him. Because of all the sins of Basha and the sins of his son Elah that they committed and that they caused Israel to commit, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. King Zimri's short and sick reign is reported in 1 Kings 16, 15-19. Zimri reigned seven days. 
Now, the troops heard it, said Zimri has conspired and he has killed the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tirzah. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house. He burned down the king's house over himself with fire and died because of the sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for the sin that he committed, causing Israel to sin. King Omri established Samaria as the new capital instead of Jerusalem. 1 Kings 16, 22-26 says Omri became king. He reigned for 12 years. He bought the hill of Samaria. He fortified the hill and called the city that he built Samaria. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did more evil than all who were before him, for he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam and in the sins that he caused Israel to commit, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Samaria was considered so accursed by God's people that for the next nearly thousand years, devout believers from the north would travel around Samaria to avoid the Samaritans until Jesus Christ told the famous parable about the Good Samaritan, was falsely accused of being a demon-possessed Samaritan, and walked through Samaria to sit down with a woman at a well, who became an evangelist to the Samaritans. King Ahab, we're told, is the worst of the worst in 1 Kings 16, 29-33. Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he took as his wife Jezebel, daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made a sacred pole. Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than had all the kings of Israel who were before him. 1 Kings 21, 25 concludes, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. The message is clear. Things can always get worse, and government is usually the problem, not the solution. This haunting historical backdrop sets the stage for the entrance of Elijah. According to a Bible commentator, the prophet Elijah prophesied to Israel, the northern kingdom, during the tumultuous reigns of King Ahab 874 through 53 BC, and King Ahaziah 853 through 32 BC, in every age, including Elijah's and our own, there are too many politicians and too few prophets. Politicians tell people what they want to hear. Prophets tell people what they need to hear. Politicians are worried about keeping their power. Prophets are worried about honoring their God. Politicians are covert and dishonest. Prophets are overt and honest. Politicians say what they want. Prophets say what God wants. Today, as much as in the days of Elijah, we need far more prophets and far fewer politicians. 
This is especially true in the church where the politicians too often get onto the board, into the pulpit, or running the denomination. Elijah serves as a courageous and fearless example of a prophet who keeps having the head-on collision with the politicians. Civil disobedience. Throughout the story of Elijah, the men of God, Elijah and Obadiah, defy the government and practice what is known as civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is what true believers must do when the government either commands them to do something that God forbids or forbids them from doing something that God commands. In the days of Elijah, when Ahab and Jezebel had the churches closed, Bible teaching schools outlawed, prophets killed, and commanded the worship of Baal and Asherah. There was no choice but to obey God and disobey the government. According to the Bible, human authority is derived from God and not innate in self. God has all authority and he delegates it to politicians, parents, pastors, and others, along with commands regarding how they are to exercise that authority. When a person in authority abuses the authority God has given them, using it in a way that is sinful and against God's commands, their authority is negated. Believers should not be rebellious, anti-authority, or lawless as a general rule because our God prefers order over anarchy. However, when the government is wrongly exercising authority in an evil manner, believers often understandably struggle to make difficult decision of whether to obey or disobey. One scripture that is perhaps most often misquoted in these instances is Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The first half of the verse declares that those under authority should honor that authority. The second half of the verse declares that those in authority should honor God's authority over them. A person under ungodly authority needs to remain loyal to God as their highest authority, hence civil disobedience. This explains why Paul not only wrote this scripture, but also got arrested and convicted by the government numerous times, even writing four New Testament books from prison for practicing civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is a frequent act of worship to God through godly people in the Bible. In Egypt, the Hebrew midwives would not kill babies, allowing Moses to live, grow up, lead the Exodus, and write the first five books of the Bible. In Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego did not bow down to worship the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. It is believed that roughly 300,000 people bowed to worship an idol, including many professing believers, while only three stood up literally sticking out like a sore thumb. In Persia, Daniel prayed publicly when King Darius outlawed it. In the days of the early church, Peter and the disciples were commanded not to preach Jesus 4.18 and did so against the law, saying in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Lastly, the Lord Jesus Christ was killed by the Roman government by welcoming people to honor him by declaring Jesus is Lord. In that day, a Roman citizen was welcome to worship any deity they wished. 
so long as they declared Caesar is Lord. The highest allegiance was to be to the national political leader, or what is commonly called emperor worship. The government executed Jesus Christ, at least in large part, for what they considered an act of civil disobedience by placing himself above the government. The truth is, God is above the government, and many corrupt and demonic governments seek to overtake the church and replace God as the highest authority. This is precisely the backdrop of the life and ministry of Elijah, a spiritual warfare case study in civil disobedience when government declares war on God. In our day, this lesson is vital. For example, as various states in America demand that parents of children with gender dysphoria give them puberty blockers, start them on a lifetime of hormones, and mutilate their genitalia, if that is what the minor child wants or risk losing custody, and having the child seized by the state to be medicated and mutilated, their response must be civil disobedience. The Bible is clear that marriage is for one man and one woman, and that Christian couples have male and female children that they are supposed to raise as sons and daughters anytime the government tries to override and overrule God. Believers are forced to practice civil disobedience to government in Christian obedience to God. As some Christian denominations slide into apostasy and false teaching on closed-handed, historically essential Christian doctrines. For example, male and female gender, marriage solely for one man and one woman, full authority of the Bible as God's word, need for sinners to repent of sin, to be saved, etc. There will need to be Christians who leave their churches and churches that leave their denominations to honor God. When a denomination of churches or a local church is disobedient to God, a godly Christian must be obedient to God. For example, during COVID, when some governmental agencies in Canada forbid churches from gathering surrounding the buildings with fencing, and worshipers tore the fences down to enter the church and worship the Lord, it was the right thing to do. As Antichrist lawmakers throughout the world increasingly seek to restrict Bible preachers from teaching the whole counsel of God's Word or punish Christian churches and ministries, for not embracing same-sex marriage, there must be godly and orderly civil disobedience as we see in Elijah's constant conflict with godless government, Elijah's miraculous ministry. As the world grows spiritually darker, we can find a great encouragement and example in the life and ministry of Elijah. In the midst of dark and demonic decline, one man stepped onto the stage of history from prior obscurity. We're not told about upbringing, education, or much of anything else. All we are told is that he was from Tishba in Gilead. Tishba is apparently such a small ancient town that to this day we don't know exactly where it was. Elijah started as literally a no one from nowhere. His name means, my God is Yahweh, Gilead is a region known as a remote place of refuge. It was home to rugged mountain men who enjoyed the privacy of the desolate and rocky hill country. The people living there 
generally lack social etiquette and educational credibility, there is a television show called Alone where outdoor survivalists are dropped into remote areas with only a few items utterly alone. They must build shelter, obtain water, hunt food, and manage a fire to remain alive. The person who can endure this rugged lifestyle the longest without tapping out emotionally or physically each season is declared the winner. Elijah would have easily won this show. At one point, he even hiked roughly 100 miles of rugged terrain through the heart of Asherah worship while on Israel's most wanted list to visit the widow and her son at Zarephath. Elijah was a rugged mountain man and looked every bit the part. 2 Kings 1.7 describes the reported sighting of Elijah the unpolished prophet. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. In many ways, Elijah and his successor, many years later, John the Baptizer, are brothers in spiritual battle. Matthew 3.4 reports, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. How Elijah got a meeting with the evil king Ahab, we will never know. A man of few words, he makes it clear that a battle is brewing between the powerful demon Baal worshipped by Ahab and the one true God, the Lord, the God of Israel. Like Jesus, who would later stop a storm by the sheer power of his word, Elijah prophesies that rain will not fall for three years until he prayed to God for rain to fall again. God has Elijah openly and publicly starting a fight with Baal, who was worshipped as the god of rain and who was believed to control the season's crops and fertility. In addition to prophesying, James tells us that his power came from praying. Most of what we know about Elijah is found in 1 Kings 17 and the report of his spiritual war against King Ahab and his demonic wife Jezebel. Elijah was a prophet with a prophetic name that foreshadowed his ministry. Eli means strength of the Lord and Jah means my God is Jehovah. Together, Elijah means, I live by the strength of the Lord, my God. Simply stated, the Holy Spirit sustained Elijah to live beyond his natural limitations, to live a supernatural life. The power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through Elijah is staggering, as his life is a series of miracles. A miracle is an event that defies common expectations of behavior and subsequently is attributed to a superhuman agent, an occurrence that demonstrates God's involvement in the course of human affairs. A miracle occurs when God overrides natural laws and does what is often described in the Bible as a sign, wonder, or power that is otherwise impossible. Those with an atheistic view of the world as a closed system devoid of God are naturalists. Christians, in contrast, are supernaturalists. Deism is the false teaching that a god made the universe but then left his creation alone and has no dealings with it, a bit like an absentee landlord. With a god absent, deism teaches that 
the world runs by natural laws that a God established to govern his creation. Subsequently, miracles are impossible because the universe is a closed system and a God does not intervene in his creation or overrule his natural laws. This is a commonly held belief and explains why scenes like the fire strike from heaven to protect Elijah are often rejected as myth or dismissed as primitive ancient suspicion. However, the worldview of the Bible is that there are two realms, seen and unseen, that form one reality. God rules over both, and these two worlds were originally together as one. We see this, for example, when God met with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which was the connecting point between the realms. Also present was an angel who was ordered to stand guard protecting the garden once our first parents sinned. When the divine being Satan showed up in the form of a serpent, our parents were not shocked or surprised because in that place, human beings and divine beings commonly met. You cannot believe God's word or understand God's world unless you embrace the supernatural. From beginning to end, the Bible is about an unseen realm as real as the visible world. Faith is required to believe in beings as real as we are who live in a world as real as ours and travel between these worlds, impacting and affecting human history and our daily lives. As a result, everything is spiritual and nothing is secular. What happens in the invisible world affects what happens in the visible world and vice versa. Furthermore, everyone is both a physical being with a body that is seen and a spiritual being with a soul that is unseen. Spiritual warfare is like gravity, unseen. It exists whether you believe in it or not, and it affects you every moment of every day. This worldview is on full display in this and other scenes of Elijah's life. When we rise from death and enter into God's kingdom, we will do so with a physical body and a spiritual soul to live in both realms with human and divine beings as God's full forever family. The entire storyline of the Bible is built upon God creating everything and everyone out of nothing as a miracle. There is a theological belief called cessationism, which basically says that the supernatural gifts and outpouring of miracles ceased, with possible rare exception, with or very soon after the days of the apostles. I have never held this position or understood it, and find it to lead to a downplaying of both the supernatural, godly, and demonic events in the Bible, as well as providing a less than clear picture of God. Here is a list of miracles in Elijah's life and ministry. God stopped the rain for three and a half years in answer to his prayer, 1 Kings 17. The widow of Zarephath's oil and flour were supernaturally renewed daily, 1 Kings 17. The widow's dead son was returned to life as the first resurrection in the Bible, 1 Kings 17. God fed Elijah with bread and meat delivered by ravens twice a day, 1 Kings 17, God sends fire from heaven, 1 Kings 18, God sent rain in response to Elijah's prayer after a three and a half year drought, 1 Kings 18, Elijah outran a horse to escape a coming flood, 1 Kings 18, God spoke to Elijah in a whisper, 
1 Kings 19, fire comes down from heaven two more times, 2 Kings 1. Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot, 2 Kings 2. The Bible often refers to a miracle as a sign that points to the kingdom of God when the unseen realm invades the seen realm. Before sin entered the world, and after Jesus returns to raise the dead and lift the curse, the kingdom of God will have no sickness or death. Miracles are signs that point us forward in faith to the kingdom of God ruled by our miracle-working King Jesus. That is precisely what we see, for example, when Elijah visits the home of the widow and her son in Zarephath. God does a miracle of providing daily bread through Elijah, just like he later does with Jesus. God then does the miracle of raising the dead through Elijah, just like he does again through Jesus. These miracles point them and us to the king and kingdom. God can and does do miracles today. This is why believers pray for everything from people to be saved bodies to be healed, provision to be given, and even the dead to be raised. Why? Because God is free to do whatever he wishes, and no one can stop his will from coming to pass. We will study more about this miracle-working mountain man and his battle as a true prophet with 850 false prophets next. Thank you for listening to the first chapter of New Day's Old Demons. To purchase the rest of the book, visit realfaith.com slash fire. Pastor Mark here saying thank you for giving me the honor of helping you to learn God's word. In a world filled with bad news, you need some good news. In a world filled with lies, you need some truth. And so, as I like to say, it's all about Jesus. We open the Bible and we help people learn about Jesus Christ. And I just want to say, uh, if you would help me get the word of God out, it would mean the world to me. You can go to realfaith.com mountain of Bible teaching. I mean, we're coming up on three decades of Bible teaching. And or if you just go to 99383 and text the word unfiltered, again, that's 99383 unfiltered. We'll send you a link that'll open up literally thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of free Bible teaching.